Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 9th, 2016, the textbook definition of racism edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson is back with me in Washington, D.C. of Face the Nation. Hello, John. You were gone last week. I was gone. It was my uh, colleague said, you know, you should tell Emily and David where you are because they say, said on the Gab Fest they didn't know where you were as we were walking to go interview Donald Trump. So I was like, well... I'll let them know, but now I'm so I'm letting you know I was in Los Angeles last week uh, interviewing Donald Trump. Yeah, while while uh, I was flying there while you guys were recording, um, and we're going to talk about that interview. I we, hope we sure will. We have to just I have I'm not sure this is going to come up in the interview, but John had the one line in there. It just like it was it was so quick response when Trump said Clinton was guilty of being stupid. John like a like Steph Curry taking a three said if that being stupid were a crime, we'd all be in jail. That was. Is that like a thing that someone has said to you, or you just came up with that? That just no, no. It's the first. It's the first song on my folk album. Uh, Uh, No, no. It's (laughs) it's just something I deeply believe. Being a person who does stupid things regularly, it's true. In fact, then I saw Orrin Hatch said something about how you know I've I've done you know unbelievably stupid things in my life, talking about some stupid thing Trump had said. We all say stupid things and do stupid things. That. Uh, other voice, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, joining us from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, guys. On this week's GabFest, will Donald Trump's racist assault on a federal judge cause him lasting damage? It sure should, but will it? Then Hillary Clinton clinches the Democratic nomination. When and how will Bernie Sanders reconcile himself to that fact? Then the case of Brock Turner, the Stanford rapist whose lenient sentence has outraged just about everyone. Will it outrage us? Probably. It will. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, the anti-Semites and the parentheses, we will try to make sense of the punctuation war that has gripped the internet or Twitter or parts of the internet. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFestPlus. And don't forget, July 13th, that is just a month away. At 7 p.m., we will have a live show in Washington, D.C. It's our first live show in D.C. for a year. Uh, it's going to be at the Warner Theater in downtown Washington. If you can get tickets at slate.com slash live. July 13th, 7 p.m., slate.com slash live for tickets. We really hope to see you there. Donald Trump this week took, took a snail's pace backward from the vile racist attack he has made against Judge Curiel. Am I pronouncing that right, Curiel? The federal judge overseeing a suit against Trump's appalling Trump University. Trump said his remarks about Curiel had been misconstrued, which is pretty funny. Like, he clearly was trying to construe them. The idea that they're being misconstrued is, is ridiculous, but he did he did slightly retreat from them. But he had spewed repeated hateful comments about Curiel, saying that he was a Mexican, which Curiel is not. Uh, 
and that that the fact that he was a Mexican made him biased and unfit to judge Trump, hilariously unfit to judge Trump because Trump says vile things about Mexicans and therefore no one should be able to judge him for that. I don't know. No, actually, he said it's because of the wall. Yeah, because I propose to do vile things towards Mexicans. Well, what about the Muslims? Trump raised and re-raised and eventually told John here that a Muslim judge might also be unfit to judge him because of bias, possibly. There was almost universal condemnation about what Trump said, not least from Republicans. Let us talk about that condemnation. Let's also talk about the kind of whether this has a long-term cost for Trump. So Paul Ryan said of Trump's comments, this is the textbook definition of racism. Why, Emily, is there so much outrage on the right about this attack on a judge? Well, for one thing, Trump was assuming that Judge Curiel's heritage defined his views in a way that precluded him from being fair as a judge. And conservatives, and this isn't only conservatives, but conservatives care a great deal about the independent judiciary and also don't normally argue that people's racial and ethnic identity determine everything about them. They tend to think in more fluid terms about race and ethnicity and other forms of identity and imagine that people can empathize and can think about other people's points of view. And I think it was deeply unsettling about Trump's whole framing is this idea that any judge can't set aside his or her feelings about some unrelated matter. I mean, this was all such conjecture, right? There was no actual um, statement from this judge that he was in any way influenced by Trump's crazy wall building plans. And then the other thing, and this, I suppose, isn't a conservative objection. It's mine, though, is that Trump's idea of, a, of his sort of definition of fairness, once he's crossed out people of Mexican heritage and Muslim, seems to be reverting to this white male judge as the norm that everyone else is deviating from. And that's just wrong and uh, a problem in itself. I wonder if Trump, did you ask him, John, if Trump thinks that a black defendant accused of a crime against a white person should have a black judge, deserves, is entitled to a black judge? I didn't ask that because we were, you know, we spent a lot of time on the specifics of this case. It was uh, um, basically what he was trying to say is the rulings have been so against me. This is the only thing I can think of that would explain why he's been this particular judge has been so against me. But he never really said it that succinctly. Uh, and that doesn't explain his view about the Muslim judge, because there is no Muslim judge who has had rulings to, which is why that distinction is more than just. That's a good point. Right. So that, that, that. Yeah, that's totally a good point. That's all theoretical, right? That's like, oh, this person would not be able to be fair to me, not has not been fair. So I interviewed Paul Ryan on Tuesday. Uh, I'm losing track of the days here. Just in terms of what you were talking about, Emily, and, and the kind of bedrock belief of conservatives. I mean, he went when I said, so why is this? Because the word racist is gets thrown around obviously a lot. And then there is on the and conservatives feel like it gets overused in, in every little way. And so when Paul Ryan says this is this statement is a textbook definition of racism. So what did that mean to him? He went back to the founding of the Republican Party, Ripon, Wisconsin. And he said, we're a party that was founded by abolitionists. And in fact, he was that day doing an event to unveil a, a new uh, poverty agenda for the House. And in the poverty agenda announcement that was before my interview, he said, the condition of your birth does not determine the outcome of your life. He was in another context stating as a truth 
something that is at issue here with what basically Donald Trump was claiming, which is that the condition of his birth, which is that he has Mexican parents, determined the outcome of his rulings. It's almost impossible to talk about this. I find this so hard to talk about. It is so, it's such a strange hill for Trump to fight on. It, there's no reason for him to... <laughs> he, he put himself there. Yeah, it's right? not an Nobody issue that he needed up. to raise. It doesn't help him politically at all. It's insulted every person it could insult and infuriated his party and, has, and doesn't, it doesn't even help him in the particulars of his attempt to influence the judge to, to improve his case. I think where well. a lot of this comes from, it's his argument. I think what we're seeing here basically, by the way, is the shift from the primary to the general because he's mentioned this before the heritage of the judge, but it was mentioned in the primary context in which this kind of kerfuffle wouldn't happen. But I think what his, his argument to me was, we have to stop being so politically correct. If a thing is a thing and I see it that way, I'm just going to say it. I'm not going to like dance around it. And for him, that is a central truth. And for a lot of his supporters, that's a central truth. And so his starting point a lot on a lot of these things is like, this is the way I see it. I'm going to say that's the way I see it. It seems to have worked pretty well for me so far. And I'm going to keep, keep going. And then so the fact that it hasn't worked well for him in this instance, this is why this is going to be in a constant battle back and forth for the next six months. And he's going to have to be battling uh you know, basically Paul Ryan a lot, I would think, on some of on these things. I also felt like watching this, there was a way in which I just didn't believe that he cares that much about becoming president. He seemed he seems obsessed with this litigation against him. And there is a tactical reason to make this argument, which is to try to force some kind of retrial or uh, a motion later that this judge should have recused himself. But by fomenting all this discord and making these claims of bias, you can then say you've poisoned the well and the judge, in fact, is biased. And the idea that Trump would put winning this case and his indignation about the litigation ahead of his political future, it just seems telling to me, even though I totally agree this isn't calculated and he's been doing, you know, right. He, his his decision to say this as a way of continuing his appeal to his supporters, I, I get that, but I still feel like this is really strange. Well, also not just ahead of, ahead of the presidency, but ahead of actually important ideas about the independent judiciary, which the president needs to needs to acknowledge and know about and enforce. And the fact that he is so obsessed with this case against him, he is willing to throw out wholesale critical aspects of the American experience and the American constitution is super disturbing, not just telling. It's like he, he only acts on instinct. He can't, there's no calm rational person in there at all, apparently, because any calm, rational person would say, this is a stupid fight to have. That's what terrifies the Republicans I've talked to, uh, because they, what they see is it's not, let's forget for a moment the underlying facts of the case. And I don't mean the legal case, I mean the facts of the <laughs> last week. What they see is unpredictability, going hard on momentary instinct without an instinct to climb down. And this has happened both now in public this week where people have said, stop it, stop it, stop it. And then other people privately. And th that's what has Republicans so worried because they've all hitched their wagon to this. I mean, I think somebody who's very supportive of Paul Ryan, who I was talking about this was like, how is this tenable for him to on the one hand say, this is the textbook definition of racism, which is now about the fourth time he's had to rebuke Trump. How can he hold that opinion on the one hand? And then on the other hand, say, 
he should be elected. <laughs> right. This is a person who is in Paul, in Paul Ryan's corner. They just were – they just – like they think there's – you know, the, those two things can't – you can't hold those two magnets together. They will they will flip apart. I, I'm not quite sure how that gets uh, – that gets worked out either. Do you think Trump – has ever apologized for anything in his life? Do you think he's ever, you know, he he like left the toilet seat up. He failed to drop Baron off at school that day and when he was supposed to. Do you think he's ever literally said, I'm sorry? He seems like somebody who, I, I, I have a somebody who I know very well who cannot say, literally cannot say, I'm sorry, I did this. And it's a, it's a pathology. And I think Trump is like that. And it, it he could get so far if he just like would he clearly doesn't believe he should ever apologize for anything or back off of anything it's a good question i can't think of an example but i think your point is so the two things it's almost impossible for politicians to say is i'm sorry and i made a mistake i mean look at how much trouble hillary clinton has had with saying that about her server but your point i think is the really uh, smart one which is that there are still so many people in his own party who are desperate for him to do Anything, it would be overly applauded if he did just some small act of contrition or self-deprecation or anything like that. I mean, you look at look at the responses to his mere use of a teleprompter, right. which, by the way, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is, of course, what infuriates people about politics in general, which is that the momentary swamps the past. And so on the right, they get furious that anybody would want to talk about what Hillary Clinton believes today and not spend time dwelling on her past. And then on the left, they look at Donald Trump and they say, wait a minute, all he did was use a teleprompter. How is that, you know, how does that cover up, make better, even out all these other things? You know, there are a lot of people ready to say, oh, see, look, he's turned the corner. He's whatever, more presidential. And so you're, what you're saying, your act of contrition would probably be received with that same kind of applause. I, I mean, I kind of feel like the, the uh, so on Tuesday night when he was declaring victory and he'd won various primaries he used a teleprompter and gave a speech that wasn't crazy and people are saying oh that the republicans are saying look now he's he's taking a lesson it's the the campaign has changed it did there's some bad analogy here but it felt like it felt like almost like the republicans have been so brutalized and so so burned by him that any small tiny thing like, oh, look, you know, they, 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 it's almost like an abused spouse who the, the, the husband brings flowers one day after, you know, having just beaten, beaten it, the, his wife up for the last 16 days. And the, the fact of bringing flowers that day is like, oh, okay, it's all changed. It's, it's not all changed, guys. It's not going to, that, that's probably a ta- terrible analogy, but. I don't care whether he apologizes or not. I feel like he's dug himself in way too deep to get out of this with an apology, and it would be completely meaningless and unconvincing. David David's not making a case for uh, he's making a case for showmanship and symbolism, not not like whether it emphatically will change people's minds. Yeah, but I think even on that level, it's meaningless at this point, but, and and was pretty quickly. But Emily, here's a question: He's he there's a basically infinite list of grotesque statements that Donald Trump has made that are anathema to to American values and ideals and decency, most of which he's made in the last year, many of which he's made in the last year. It's seriously an infinite number. Why should this one be the one that somehow sticks? Or is there any reason to think that this one is going to be the one that sticks? 
Well, first of all, the timing, as John was saying, he's under a greater degree of scrutiny. The role the country is assessing him for is different. The moments of like, oh, this is entertaining and an extension of his reality TV persona. Those are over. And then I think also there's a way in which this, um, well, no, I mean, talking about, uh, he said so many racist things before. I can't say that this offends American values in a different way. Maybe it's just the timing and the way in which the timing forced um, conservatives and Republicans to respond and join in denouncing him instead of just trying to ignore him. I also think this is different than things he said before. I mean, I think this is um, also it gets at a bedrock um, American. And as we started out by saying, it challenges a, an American ideal in a way that that just felt direct. Well, but, but, but no, but he said, I want to ban Muslims from immigration that's yeah, pretty that anathema pretty right i'm not defending that as a core american principle but i guess this is if there's a a target this is right in the bullseye not like one ring out so last question on this john for you is there any point at which the the heart of the republican establishment which is now more or less hitched itself to trump unhitches mark kirk a republican running for senate in illinois rescinded his endorsement but kirk is in a desperate state and and you know he's in a state where trump's going to lose by 30 points and he's just doing what he has to do is the the people who the paul ryan's the mitch mcconnell's is there a point at which they decouple two things keep them from doing that one is hillary clinton they don't they really don't want her to be president and so they would essentially be accepting that if they were to unendorse because it wouldn't it would be you know it would be a cataclysmic event if, if a leader unendorsed trump they would be blamed by a not insignificant portion of their voters for uh, essentially doing what's electing Hillary Clinton. And also because a lot of people do see this as a politically correct witch hunt, they wouldn't think, oh, well, this is valid for them to, to back off. But the other thing they would have to weigh is Paul Ryan is basically saying, I have a set of ideas, and those ideas are more likely to get signed by President Trump than President Clinton. And since I believe in those ideas... This is the way, this is the rationale he made when I asked him about it after he just said it was a textbook racist comment. So I still believe in those ideas. The problem or the challenge for him is what if those ideas then start getting harmed by their association with Donald Trump um, or association with the party? I mean, there's an argument that this historian Bruce Miroff makes, which is a really compelling and interesting argument about in 72 when McGovern loses because he picks Thomas Eagleton and it just essentially destroys his campaign, that that basically destroyed a set of liberal ideas because the ideas that were at the heart of McGovern's campaign couldn't get decoupled from his political incompetence. And so therefore, a bunch of ideas, when McGovern lost, people thought, oh, see, nobody can run as a real liberal, so don't try that again. So if the ideas get get tied to, to Trump, then that's what you could imagine Ryan thinking, these things I really do care about are now in danger of getting destroyed. I can't honestly believe that Republicans think in their heart of hearts that Donald Trump is a better president for America or that they're more likely to have a, a better America after a Trump presidency than with a Clinton presidency. They can't possibly – with a Clinton presidency, that you can be a loyal opposition. You can continue to push forward your ideals. With a Trump presidency, like insane things could happen. I think it's and, a jump ball. I think based on, the, based on the conversations I've had with people in the leadership in Congress, for sure, privately, they, they – I think that they are pretty close to what you just said. And, and then I think there's another group of people who think like, 
they don't know what to do. Right. So it really is pick your poison for them. I mean, that's a true feeling. Okay. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hillary Clinton clinched the Democratic nomination on either Monday or Tuesday of this week, depending on whom you believe. Certainly on Tuesday, she had a triumphant, triumphant night. She strongly won the New Jersey and California primaries and a couple others. She locked in a majority of pledged delegates to accompany the super majority of super delegates that she had already won endorsement from. Let's not lose sight of the fact this is a historic moment. This is the first woman to win a major party presidential nomination in American history. That's fantastic. Exciting. My heart fluttered. Emily's heart fluttered. Don't, don't, don't have a heart attack. Don't have any heart condition. No, not, it was a happy heart flutter. It was just a feeling of, I can't really believe this is happening. It was exciting. The week has not been so historic for Bernie Sanders, who has neither dropped out of the race nor really acknowledged Clinton's triumph, nor even said anything particularly nice about her. So... Emily, Clinton on Tuesday night made very warm and gracious and welcoming remarks to Sanders and his supporters and praise, full of praise. How and when is he going to reconcile himself? Soon and with great enthusiasm, but not quite yet. I love the story that Howard Dean keeps telling. I feel like I've read it now 10 times that when he was at this moment in his campaign and was that 2004 Al Gore called him on the phone and Dean just says about himself that he just like ranted for 10 minutes about how he'd been cheated and done in and it was such a terrible system. And Gore finally just said to him, this isn't about you. It's about the country. And then Dean pulled out of the race the next day. I mean, that's where that's the point we're at. We're at the point of like reconciling oneself with disappointment and reality. And um, it makes sense that it takes uh, at least a few days to process all of that. And Sanders, if he pulls out now and does it in an honorable, admirable way, he's going to leave this race a hero and with so much more power and clout than he had before. So I feel like it's, it's, I know he lost, but I really feel like it's just time for him to move the goalposts and declare a different kind of victory. John, everyone's analogizing to Hillary Clinton in 2008 also, where she, you know, it was clear she was not going to be the nominee. She took a day and then she sort of came back and, and endorsed and campaigned and sort of su supported Obama mm -hmm. in a helpful way. Sanders is not a Democratic 
Party loyalist. He barely is in the Democratic Party. His, right. his, the voters who are voting for him are distinctly not people who are hardcore Democratic voters. Yeah, and to the extent they are Democrats, yeah. they're disappointed with the Democratic Party for not going far enough. So is there... Is there any chance that this is a different situation? Hillary Clinton in 2008 yeah. was very tied in and, and sort of like was had locked herself to the Democratic establishment. Sanders doesn't have that loyalty or necessity, right. and he's an old man. He, he, and he's not trying to preserve his political viability for a future race. You know, Hillary Clinton uh, had 2016 in mind in some fashion. So, I mean, I think you have two things that are going on with Bernie Sanders from his standpoint, I think. Although I've spent more time talking to uh, the Republican side of the world this week, you have the the heady fact that he did more and did better than anybody could have guessed, including himself. So that's just to ha- how to give that up is one thing. But then it's also how to make how to not fritter that away. How you know you've got like this little snowball that you've kept alive in the heat of July and, uh, and, and you, you want to do something with it. And then I think secondly, there's a, always been a feeling among liberals that he wants to keep alive the idea that even though everybody tells you it can't happen, you're wrong, the establishment is too big to fight, that they got much further and got pretty, pretty close to beating the establishment. And even if he never continues, which he won't, he's too, but um, I mean, as a presidential candidate, you want to save that starter yeast. You, this is one of the things that happened with Howard Dean is he was like, you know, uh, that amazing sense of the system working. Um, you want to keep that alive somehow. And so how is the best way to do that? Um, and I don't, you know, the problem with the best way to do that is there isn't really none of the things he will be given keep that idea alive, really, because the establishment won on the Democratic side, because the Democratic side isn't like the Republican side. There is no, I mean, there are people who have very strong feelings who don't like the establishment, but they are not the Tea Party yet. There are not a host of Democrats who are worried about their jobs um, who can, who might get voted out. There's no, the last, you know, when we saw Joe Lieberman uh, lose in the Democratic primary uh, when he was a senator, that was like, the high watermark for non-presidential movements on the left. You know, there's not a movement across the country to throw out capitulating Democratic senators. There just isn't that movement. Wait, but does that argue for Sanders graciously reconciling himself or for Sanders being like, done, I'm out of here and I'm not going to tell my voters what to do. I'm going to just sort of wish for a progressive revolution to continue. I think it, I I don't know. I don't know what's in his head. I think in the end, because he lost California by 13 points, because he is way under in the popular vote and way under in pledge delegates, and he doesn't have any support from Elizabeth Warren. He doesn't have any support. When Ted Kennedy did this in 1980, he had Democratic senators, Pat Moynihan, Robert Byrd, saying, the party really isn't the Carter, of, uh, the party of Carter. It's the party of, of Ted Kennedy. But Hillary Clinton has lots of lots and lots of support in the Democratic Party. Like, it's, it's a true thing, not just in the, in the votes that she got in, in all kinds of different ways, but in the polling. So it's harder for him to find fertile ground for that. And I think in the end that will bring him into the fold to do the right thing by Democrats, which will be, and oh, by the way, two other things. He cares about issues, which he's going to have a chance to have some influence on. And B, I think, you know, Donald Trump as the alternative is a, is a strong motivator. Emily, if you're Hillary Clinton, you, you know, you're losing young voters four to one, five to one, seven to one in some places to Sanders. What is it beyond getting Bernie Sanders to endorse you, which, which as 
I think I agree with you guys, he will. What is it that you, Hillary Clinton, need to do to, to get these people to vote, enthusiastically come out, canvas for you, et cetera? You present yourself as a really strong alternative to Trump. You know, you remind them that if they don't vote for you, they're going to be in some way, shape or form helping to elect him or certainly not standing in his way. And then you think deeply about whether your vice presidential choice should tilt in the direction of the left as opposed to the middle. I mean, without the Sanders candidacy, I feel like there's no question that um, Hillary would choose a vice president who would be designed to pick up independent voters, um, some of these white men who um, also are so uninspired by her. Vice President White. Uh, Wait, but the independent voters is a weird, because the Sanders voters are independent voters, too. True. I I guess I meant moderates. The the middle, that that elusive middle, whether it actually exists. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what do you think, John? Maybe that's not the smart play. Maybe she should. The vice presidential thing always really irritates me because I think the power of the vice presidential pick is tiny. I don't think it I don't think it matters. I think it's a useful way to talk about the weaknesses of the uh, of the underlying candidates. I think it can matter if you pick up a, a bad choice. I mean, I think John McCain totally undermined his candidacy by picking Sarah Palin because his candidacy was based on the idea that I have I'm ready from day 1 to do this job and this guy has no no skills. So then he picked a vice president who had none of the skills that he said were responsible for the or necessary in the job and then argued that she did as a political move we know why he picked Sarah Palin and why it was you know he needed to spur the party and it did so they can undermine you but I don't think they can really like super boost you and I'm I scratch my head at the pushing of Elizabeth Warren for her you know when you talked about your reaction to Hillary Clinton as the first woman nominee there are a lot of Democrats who are going to have that reaction who recognize lots of her flaws and yet nevertheless had that gut level emotional reaction and that won't go away and I think also she because we're now in a choice election and I think she remember how much People didn't know what her message was in the primaries. But now in her speech Tuesday night, she said, we want to build bridges, not walls. That's a pretty good encapsulation of her entire message. She now has a message, which is in opposition to Donald Trump. And when people like Bob Corker were defending Trump, he they were saying, I'm not going to defend this behavior against a standard. One of the things we're going to flip back and forth between is how to def- judge these candidates against a fixed standard or against each other. And Bob Corker said, I'm not going to defend the behavior, but we face a binary choice. In other words, this is a choice between two people, which helps him say, you know, in the end, I think Donald Trump would be better. But it also lets Hillary Clinton off the hook because Clinton would very much like this election to be a choice because then you're not judging her against the rules she broke on the email server. You're judging her against another person. Now, of course, I know that she'd like it to be a referendum on Donald Trump. But I guess my point is on on the left and the needs of the left, I think there will be a rallying behind her the same way there was a rallying behind Trump. And your reaction felt like when you said that, I thought, well, there we are. We're seeing that's the rallying. How many elections have we had where there's been this bridge metaphor? Bill Clinton was bridging, bridging yeah. the 21st century. There was the bridge to nowhere. The Sarah Palin Bridge, the 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 cheat fall. Obama was kind of all about bridges. Bridget, people love you know. the bridge metaphor. People love the Always bridge. Want bridge. And yet, and yet, America's bridges are in terrible shape. The infrastructure of America <laughs> is falling apart. So people want to. They, what, this is actually this is a, like a kind of a metaphor, which is people want to build bridges, and you build a new bridge, and it's great. But nobody wants to actually maintain the old bridge. 
and the old bridges are <laughs> falling apart and crumbling and dangerous as hell. It's just, this is uh, there's something also, profound here. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving this to somebody out there. Um, there's a story for you. Or just to comment on the gap. Why is the bridge maybe? always to the future? Why can't a bridge be to the past? Yeah. Why is it true? Why is this always this? Is this a total well, Donald triumph? Donald Trump of, is building bridges to the past. Right. He just doesn't but put is it this in a, that. is this a total triumph of Clinton's bridge to the 21st century? Like that we now think of bridges as being into the future? Because what if it's like a single lane bridge that uh, or no yeah, cars co- allowed? No cars allowed. Yeah. Or covered like a walk. little a covered bridge. Sure. Yeah. Bridges Beautiful. of Madison Horse County. And buggies are only allowed to drive down it. So I don't know what the um, smart pick is on the vice president, but. Um, I know, does somebody can somebody make the super you smart have a case? To sell us? Yeah, super smart case for Elizabeth Warren as the like great slam dunk pick for Hillary I Clinton. I do not see it. She, I do not see it. Oh, well, I'll make a case. She's excellent at taking on Donald Trump. She gets precisely the voters fired up that Clinton needs not just to like be you know reconciled to her, but be knocking on doors for her. Clinton has weaknesses among younger women and um, married women. Warren could help. She you know would just get everyone super fired up because she's more exciting on the stump. Then this is a problem. She could also upstage Clinton, but she has much more of like a firebrand way about her that is very of this moment. All right. So I think the problems with Warren are one. Apparently, she's very difficult to work with and people don't like working with her. I think doubling down on old white women seems like a huge mistake. It just makes you the old white woman. Oh, yeah. Ticket. We've doubled down on old white men. And it's a pro. Yeah. Years. And it's now you it would be very hard if, if Trump picks an old white guy. It's going to be that's going to be a bad look for him, too. And and people will will beat him, beat him for it. I think. Clinton, Clinton has to. We're done with the two old white guy ticket. No. Yeah, but we're done with it being a uh, not being a problem for candidates. Yeah, and also I think we're done with the two old white guy ticket. I think you you might have two young. I think they'll probably be two youngish white guys or the young old. It's going to be hard to to have a two two old white guys in the future. You don't think that, Emily? It's irritating to decide that Warren can't be the vice president because she's a woman in her whatever it is, 50s or 60s. Like, I just, yes, I see that there's, um, she resembles Clinton, Hillary Clinton in that way. But given all of our history, come on. I mean, that can't be the thing that disqualifies her. Come up with but something. But wait, why isn't, why do you say, come on, you mean because you wouldn't like it to be that way or because you don't think it really is that way? I, well, I do, certainly don't like the idea that it's that way. And I'm not sure that it is that way. I mean, I think you could make an argument that Clinton needs women to come to her in droves with more of the, um, you know, gender breakdown than Obama got with Romney. She is going to have, I mean, if you're scared of Trump, if you see his appeal as being with men. Why why would women base their votes solely on the gender of the people being elected? Not solely, but younger women have been super enthusiastic about Elizabeth Warren in particular. They see her as a standard bearer. Up for issues or gender? On issues. uh, You know, I mean, the things can get tangled up in each other, but on issues. I mean, there are younger women for whom Clinton feels like not the standard bearer they were looking for. I don't share this feeling, but you read it all the time. It's like, you know, she was she came to power as the wife. She has all this baggage. I wanted to be someone, but not her. When she's running against, do you think there's a, there's a woman in the world, a, you know, a thirty year old woman in the world who is a an avid Sanders supporter who f- forced to vote between Trump and Clinton? Is I mean, they might not as Some enthusiastically. Of them are 
Yes, I not think that many are going to stay home. home. Some of them will stay home, but not that many. Some of them will but, stay home. But that's, yeah, that's, 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 in a, that's in the summer. That's in the that's, spring right. uh, it, fantasy land. It's, it's before the heart fluttering that you described takes hold. No, it's it's right now. I mean, I don't look. I no. Sanders is right. still in the race. Sanders is still but, in the race. There's no, been no triumphant moment where Hillary Clinton, you know, get, does a does a heartfelt video about her grand triumphs at the convention and people come out and say like yes here we go and she's running against a misogynist monster all i'm saying is i think that uh, look it's not like elizabeth warren is the only candidate out there i do think though that she has some significant strengths and i think that while it would i mean i said this a few weeks ago at warren it kind of worries me the idea of two women on the ticket it seems like too much at once for the country to swallow but maybe that's wrong maybe i'm underselling the country and maybe there are people who would come out these you know these people who haven't voted before who've have who sanders has appealed to so much who will not necessarily just like show up at the polls for the democrat because they're scared of donald trump and they need yeah, something more and she would make the difference i don't, I don't, I don't think know. she's they're not going to show up at the polls because of the number two they'll show up at the polls because the number one is saying things that uh, continue to excite them and prove that she's believes in those issues. And then All right, that, so you who's your male pick for vice president? I don't think I just don't know. some white guy. Just no, some some white. Guy. Anyone will. Do I would it. be fine. John some would be fine. Ex governor of Virginia. Yeah, I think Colorado. just really any. I mean, no, that doesn't. Why they don't even have to be a governor? Just a white guy. Exactly. Uh, good. good. I just I think making guy. I think making any claim for huge upside on vice presidential picks. Period. I'm. Hugely, I'm very, I'm very, very skeptical of. That's why, that's my main skepticism uh, on Warren. Is it's not even about Warren. It's about the upside potential you get from any pick. I think the best possible picks are ones where they reinforce some quality of the underlying candidate. Tough woman, underscoring tough woman qualities. Empathy, yeah, caring. Wait, empathy and caring are tough. Are also they, tough women? Yeah, yeah, tough. The whole package. Women. Yeah, uh, yeah. I. Um, I mean, what you just said would rule out like any vice president. I'm not arguing that you know Warren's going to send her shooting up in the polls. I'm not sure anyone would. But given that, why not Warren? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I seem. To, I feel like I've been reading things that that uh, um, suggests there's all of this huge upside potential for it. Maybe I'm over-reading what the... Uh, maybe I'm over-reading the case people make for her. Also, by the way, if you look at the race that Hillary Clinton ran, I know people said she moved to the left, but only on trade. She basically didn't move there on minimum wage. She, she didn't oh, move well, there she on health care. Oh, did on minimum wage. Oh, in that yeah, and that kind that of... That's going to fool all those <laughs> smart young women who care about policy that she, like kind of wiggled over on minimum wage. I don't think that's going to fool. I don't think that's going to get those people crashing through the door to go pound yard signs and uh, and organize for the ticket. On policy well, good. matters. I'm glad that you're you're thinking she should move even further to the left. Well, uh, well that's no, watching that's, that happen. <laughs> yeah. No, that's hardly the case. I just think the um I think that you can't pick a candidate if you're not going to embrace the underlying ideas. Uh, I don't think you can pick a candidate and have people suddenly say, oh, you know, they've she's picked – she's now suddenly embracing those underlying ideas. All right. Let's leave it there. We'll come back to this Veep question later. There is a terribly sad story out of California involving a young woman raped while unconscious by a Stanford freshman, I think, named Brock Turner, a yes, white man. Yes, he was 19 at the time. Yeah. A white man and a star athlete at Stanford. Turner was found guilty – 
by a jury of three felonies and sentenced by Judge Aaron Persky to only six months in prison, less, I believe, than the guidelines suggested. Persky was lenient on the grounds, on many grounds, that Turner was drunk, that he was unlikely to be violent again, had no history of violence, and most irritating to many people. Concerned about the impact on his future of sending con- him to con- prison. Yeah, concerned about the impact time. on his future. Also, he'd already suffered so much from the loss of his college scholarship. Attention really focused on this case when BuzzFeed published in full the the statement that the victim had made in court, a statement that described her wounds, that described what had been taken from her, the violence that had been done to her, and her experience of it. Very remarkable document, a remarkable piece of, of self-examination. Narrative, description, narrative. taking of power, pretty much everything. Yeah. Turner's own statement to the court and then a statement that was released, uh, that, was, that was leaked, that his father had also made towards the court asking for leniency. Both those statements took very little responsibility for the crime, shrugged blame off on drinking culture, the generally promiscuous culture of college, and really complained about the effects this would have on Turner's life. And those those statements were not um, welcomed by a lot of people in the world. It is very hard not to be enraged by what's going I on. Know. What's the debate here? There's the privilege that got him a lenient sentence, the question of whether what the proper sentence ought to have been. I mean, yeah, is, that's that is interesting. I actually think there's another discussion to have as well, which is that the sentence is, in my view, not defensible, especially the way at which it was arrived. Although I also just want to note that Brock Turner also has to register for life as a sex offender, which is like a real thing that comes right. along with the verdict, right? Okay, so that that's like part. And also, he, you know, has been banned for life from Stanford. I'm not, I I think that was the right outcome for these facts. But here's what a different way to view this case, Um, not only to look at the way in which the sentence is disappointing to this victim and a lot of her supporters, and our general feeling that the country is too tolerant of men who commit rape. There's also the fact that this was a drunken encounter in which the victim blacked out and couldn't remember what had happened. And often when you have those kinds of circumstances, we don't have any kind of holding of responsibility. I mean, this is a case in which because I, to some degree of this sort of key other fact, the appearance of two witnesses who these two Stanford graduate students were bicycling by, they saw this woman not moving, and they saw Brock Turner on top of her behind a dumpster outside of a frat house on campus. And they stopped their bikes. They knew something was wrong. When Turner tried to run away, they chased him down and they called the police. And the police disbelieved Turner. He, you know, told them he thought that this woman was consenting, that yes, he'd been drinking and so had she, but he thought, he even said that he thought she was enjoying herself, which was just horrific, the victim said, when she realized he'd made that statement. But in any case, the police, the prosecutors, the university, Everyone except for this judge saw this case through the eyes either of the victim or the eyes of these graduate students who one of whom cried when he told the police what he'd seen. And that is actually like a sign of progress for um, people who want to reform rape law and who are worried about um, men getting away with all kinds of things when it comes to sexual assault. So, like, let's just take into account that part of it, too, because I think it matters. Isn't this in some sense the flip side of Trump's case against Curiel, that here you have a judge who, because he was a white man, a Stan- former Stanford athlete himself, uh, he may have some intrinsic sympathy for the the defendant, for Brock Turner, because of his race and position. 
and interests and rules in favor of him because of that. It's really like the same. It's the same issue. Well, it did feel infuriatingly possible that that was the case. Wait, so um, if that's infuriatingly possible, why is Trump so wrong? Well, because we don't know that to be true, and we also yeah, but you're uh, you're entertaining the idea. You're totally entertaining the idea, and you have a gut level reaction to it that was you said it was entertaining. Trump caught me. (laughs) No, 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 come on, that's that's not fair. Look, I have been struggling. There's a recall campaign against this judge, and. I've been struggling with what to make of that in large part because I've been thinking about it through the Trump lens, right? If we assume that this person, you know, no longer deserves to be in office because maybe his decision was biased or just wrong, then we are going down. Right. Well, maybe and maybe that's the better way to think about this. Maybe we shouldn't be making the connections even in our heads that David has made. Well, you mean so you say it's wrong, but you don't interrogate why it's wrong, why it might be wrong, might be wrong because they are demographically and and socioculturally matched. Well, Well, the problem with. Yeah. Go ahead. You don't have to get there, do you? Can't you just say no? It's but wrong? but how do you get to the solution? Which the solution is that we need that we need judges who reflect. Diverse, and the judges have to be aware of that yeah, 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 themselves. Yeah. And That's good. Well, I mean, or could you get it the way you? Because then, what does that world look like? Because then you have to like have the judges in the Donald Trump Emily Bazelon world. You have to have the judges like meet some. Oh, great. I'm glad you've lumped me in with him. No, you don't. (laughs) This is the answer to that. No, no, I know. And it comes from Judge Posner, actually. It's that you have a judiciary that reflects the diversity of the country. And every judge brings what Judge Posner calls their priors with him or her to the bench, right? Everyone, Everyone does their job in a way that's informed by their background, their child upbringing, their whatever, their education. That's just well, who we all are. But that right. doesn't mean we can't imagine that they're going to be fair and, and set those priors aside when we expect them to do their job. And so perhaps it's but, deeply unfair to judge Persky's to assume that he didn't do that here. It's well, just that uh, it's tempting because of the shared pieces of identity. Well, but can't you just have make a bad decision and it not be about the pieces of shared identity? And isn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's just I mean, a it's weird, as, it's bad as, decision, right? Like here you uh, have this, this guy gets charged with three serious felonies. He gets convicted by the jury. The standard that the jury is using is, did he know or reasonably should he have known that she didn't consent? And then at the sentencing, you start talking about, you know, how drinking makes him less morally culpable and you're worried about his future and you don't talk about her. Like, the reason David brought it up is like, why do you do that? Yeah, but this is exactly what Trump said. It was such a weird, bad decision. This is the only thing I can can. But he has no evidence of a weird, on. bad decision. He just has a bunch of rulings that have yeah, gone against him. Yeah, well, in him. his case, that's what he believes. But <laughs> yeah, I get. But, but the point is that the the logic pattern and the thoughts are you know not totally dissimilar. Right, uh, but well, isn't the answer was... that you teach that judges should rule based on like that? He basically just overvalued these other things. That is just, and that that just is wrong on its face, regardless of what kind of a judge he was. Right, and I mean, it would be that, wrong no matter who but, he is. Yeah, and so have judges be smarter in the way they weigh uh, these kinds of cases. Can, can we can we actually go to the question of whether this is a terrible sentence? I haven't done significant or any research, so <laughs> so what I'm about to say is Emily's about to tear apart and the and the and oh, all of I'm our excited. listeners. Keep going. It seems to me that the the problem here is not that this guy got six months and is a sex offender for life. It's that everybody else is getting outrageously long sentences. The only mechanism we can think of here is a longer and longer 
sentence and then a sex offender registry. It's not clear to me that putting anybody on a sex offender registry for life does any good to anybody at all. There's a lot of evidence that that is just a terrible thing that is ruinous for ex-offenders and doesn't actually make anything safer, number one. And number two is, should any 19-year-old at the start of their life, you know, for a terribly serious crime, is society served by putting that person away for 20 years, generally? Like when, Well, I don't think six months and 20 years are the only choices okay. here. I, I'm not somebody who wants to recall judges for giving lighter sentences than general. Yeah, in general, I, we I are giving we are people over sentencing people. And if this right, if this makes us if this makes us realize, like you know what the the young Hispanic and African American kids who are convicted of sexual assault and are getting ten times the sentence, that's the that's the real problem. Rather than this one kid is is somewhat undersentenced. Yeah, I would say two things. First of all, I don't think that the chances of this translating into leniency for um, men of color or poor men, I, I just, that seems yeah. like a fantasy to me. True. And yeah. the second yeah, thing yeah. is that six months for rape, that's too short. That I mean, there. I agree with you in general that we send people to prison for too long, but relative to how we think about punishment, and also I just feel like objectively, that's just not enough prison time. And it bothers me immensely that the person who received that leniency is this privileged white guy and not someone who might have had a lot more reason to um, explain such terrible behavior. Do you think it is wrong for Brock Turner's family to spend enormous resources and use their position of privilege to try to get him a lighter sentence? And, And was his father wrong to try to do everything he could to get him a lighter sentence? No, I don't actually blame his parents for that. I mean, I think his father went about it in a really ham-handed way, and there's a um, self-centeredness to the statement he wrote that I understand it as a parent, but it was, first of all, um, in the court of public opinion, has been totally self-destructive. And also, it's just, there's a blindness there. I mean, talking about sexual promiscuity when your son has been found attacking an unconscious woman behind a dumpster that has nothing to do with right there's like not enough there's not enough promiscuity if there was sexual promiscuity you would find someone to have sex with that you didn't right. have to I rape mean, uh, that's what whoa. that's what promiscuous culture means right yeah i mean this woman didn't do anything that we know of that suggests that it's just that really just ugh, makes me want to take a shower on the other hand i do feel like Parents make mistakes at moments like this because they're consumed with concern for their kids. And it, it, I do feel like the shaming machine on the Internet is kind of out of control in this case, even though I agree with the underlying discomfort. I, I too, was struck, Emily, by the self-involvement of Turner's own statement and then his father's statement, that there's this such a tendency in people have such a hard time not focusing on themselves. And just they, accepting responsibility in except, some really basic right. way. I mean, right? it's a, it's a, it's a, the vic the attempt like they made Turner himself a victim of a of society of circumstances of drinking it was, and Turner's Turner's statement more than his father's statement I found so weak. Yeah. It was really just about himself and like how I don't want to go to any parties where there's any drinking anymore. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. And it's just so so little uh, ability to put himself in 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 the place of the the woman whose life he has destroyed and ruined and and it's really well, hopefully he hasn't destroyed and ruined her life but yes he certainly hurt her and wounded her and um 
there was um, he I mean, he must just be still fundamentally unable to accept that he committed this serious crime. There's just a way in which he was even though he expressed remorse, it felt like mostly he was excusing himself. But I do think that's that's everyone's tendency. Everyone's tendency is just to think about the people just want to make themselves into victims. That's like a that's the that's I would say the it's true. And it worked with the judge. It's just that it is not flying with the rest of us. John, let's close on the the victim statement. Victim statement, uh, which BuzzFeed published, uh, and CNN, a CNN anchor, Ashley Banfield, read in full on CNN. More power to her. Just an incredibly powerful piece of writing. Yeah. Um, Is there anything that comes out of it, anything more significant than this is just a powerful piece of writing about a young woman who's had her life turned upside down? Well, I think in addition to giving voice to somebody who feels like the system stole her voice and uh, advantaged the voice of someone else based merely on the sports they play and the advantage of their birth and the school they went to. So there's a, a rebalancing that of what an injustice that she felt took place in the courtroom. I think then as a symbol for lots of other rape victims who feel the same way or sexual assault victims who feel the same way about their voice, uh, I think it also gave power to that silent and angry, justifiably, obviously so group. I think another way, though, is that it hopefully there will be men who will read this and who will it will have some effect on them. I think that's the, those are three of the lasting uh, benefits of it. I also think there's an amazing way in which um, some rape victims of late have just refused to be ashamed. They're speaking very frankly about what happened to them. They're um, making people see the experience through their eyes and they're, they're coming together. Um, she ends on this amazing note of saying that she wants other girls and women in her position to know that she's there for them. And that is really powerful and has the, uh, the capacity also to change how we think about this issue because it doesn't have to simply be ruinous. It, I mean, I don't want to diminish that part of the experience because it's very present in this letter, but there's also the sense that this is a person who has an enormous amount to contribute and she's, um, she's going to make sure that happens. And by the way, we should uh, – the other lesson that should – is the two – were they Swedish? The two Swedish graduate students? Yeah. Uh, they're, right. yeah. That's the thing that uh, also should be kind of – should be held up because uh, I remember this in something that happened when I was in school. There was a lot of, you know, sort of like, oh – so it's just trying to move past it, literally move move past situations that should not stand. And so when people stop and do things like that, which in this case made all the difference, or maybe not, given the people's feelings about the sentencing, but there should be people, more people like that in the world. And this is exactly what campus sexual assault prevention is trying to teach is this idea of bystander intervention or being an upstander that, you know, you should be on the lookout for an alert to situations in which you can um, help someone out. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. I had a... I got this pickle juice. Just pickle juice? A gin cocktail. Oh, good. I'm glad there was Well, it was gin and pickle juice and some lime juice and uh, simple syrup. It was good. 
Was this because you had pickle juice, or you're just like you're now in some? I had a pickle juice. Was it like at the bottom of the jar? Did you buy pickle juice? Some artisanal like uh, operation in DC convinced me to buy brine. I was like, (laughs) instead of putting salt in your own water. Yeah, and and then I was like, oh, I have some pickle. They've left. This is a pickling company. They have some leftover brine, and they've just sold it to me for five dollars. I am such a sucker. <laughs> but that's okay. And then you went back to painting your fence. Uh, or yes. your neighbor's fence, I should say. So what is your chatter, Emily? I have been listening with great enjoyment to a podcast called Two Dope Queens. It's yes. by Jessica Williams and Phoebe Robinson. They have all kinds of super fun comedians on. They talk about their lives in a refreshing blunt fun way and um and i'm really enjoying it and so i'm sure some of our listeners already know about it but it's pretty new right david it is uh yeah it's a couple months old it's great yeah so check it out it's fun two dope queens wnyc you can find it wherever we are wherever podcasts everywhere are uh john dickerson what is your chatter my chatter is uh, thanks to Reddit, which I've been having a new or re- renewed love affair with recently. I don't know why. I guess, I mean, because I've been finding uh, great things on there, but also I think it's because basically I put the app on my first screen. And uh, anyway, this is, uh, um, this is about shot towers. So uh, the reason I like this story is um, so it all starts with, uh, from a plumber named William Watts in 1783 in Bristol, mm. uh, in Bristol, England. I love it when when John says 1783. It's like <laughs> what Watts did is he recognized Harrison. What Watts uh, recognized, I guess, because he was, he was in the company of um, so much water, being that he was a plumber, was that water when when raindrops fall or. We sort of often make them in the shape of a teardrop, like a like a kiss candy. But that's not the way they fall. When they fall, they're spherical. So Mr. Watts thought saw an opportunity in this. And at the time, shot for bullets for rifles were created in cavity molds. So you pour a bunch of lead into a mold and it it didn't work. It was really hard to do. The balls that were produced were kind of cattywampus, so they didn't fly straight. They would hit sometimes. People who used to get shot, and it would kind of like bounce off them because it had lost all of its velocity in flight. So Watts uh, thought, oh, well, of course, we can make shot this way. But what I love about this is, so in order to figure out if he was right, he went home to his tenement house. And this basically, the reason it's spherical is it has to do with surface tension. Somebody maybe can write in and explain exactly why it works out that way. But he went back to his brick row house in Bristol and began adding floors to his house. He's just like, he's just like out there like building new floors so that he can go all the way to the top and put a tank at the bottom yes. and drop the, drop the shot. So turns out Mr. Watts, after building two new floors, and there's a picture this is what attracted to me at the beginning was there's a picture of his row house in Bristol and there's like all these row houses and then there's this one that goes bloop and it goes up two stories. It looks like a like a sort of a medieval turret. Um, anyway, so then um, after he knocked through all the floors and put a water tank at the bottom, he poured the lead into a, sli- into a sieve and the lead formed into spheres that fell for six floors and it dropped into the water below and boom, it, it worked perfectly. So in America, they started doing this too. And so for a long time, the tallest buildings in America, and I think the one in the Phoenix shot tower in Baltimore was the tallest tower in the United States for about two decades. This is what these were. And the other cool thing about the Phoenix tower, by the way, in Baltimore was that it was, it's made completely of bricks. I think for a while it might've been the, 
more bricks than in any other building or 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 it was and it was also built without any scaffolding which is just a but that this total this guy breaking through the ceiling of his house in Bristol England suddenly across the United States there were all of these shot towers made to or created to to uh, produce shots so, that's a great that's awesome that's what I, I just, learned I'm just sending this to my Alice Obscura colleagues I'm sure, but I feel like Atlas Obscura has you know I feel like you you must have done something we've done something with, with them I'm just looking it up oh okay. Um, do you have to do this right now? Yeah. Can't you actually be on the show and then send your note to your colleagues? But now it's done. It's done. Um, okay. It, it was, that was journalism in action right there. Uh, my chatter is about a fantastic story. I'm surprised you didn't chatter this, Emily, in The New Yorker this week by our friend Amanda Schaefer. Oh, I love the story. I'm so glad you're chattering that. It's called Lost at Sea. And it is about uh, an amazing episode in 1941, in the summer of 1941, when a ship, a U.S. ship called the Robin Moore, carrying equipment, it was, a, it was a freighter, carrying equipment and a few passengers, I think it was sailing to South Africa, was accosted by a German submarine that uh, sank it uh, after allowing the, the passengers to get onto lifeboats. And it's a story about what happened to the passengers who were placed onto lifeboats, these three or four lifeboats. Um, and set adrift in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And it's an incredible story of of the beginning of the war, of survival, of terror. And it has probably one of the last, best last page twists of anything you'll read this year. It's got a great ending. finishing twist. Yeah, really. It's really got a great ending. So I, I would commend you to The New Yorker, Lost at Sea. Our intern is Kevin Townsend, our producer is Jocelyn Frank, Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply, the Gavits is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest, and our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, that really helps us. Search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Emily and John, I'm David. We will talk to you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.